Welcome to another edition of Sports with Friends. This is episode 421. Today we are going to talk about a lot of topics all surrounding sports business. So much going on. Earlier this week, the Tampa Bay Rays announced a new stadium. After 15 years of trying to get one, they put it in the worst possible place. The college football realignment stuff we've done on the podcast, but now the Pac-2 needs a home. And what happens to them? Washington State and Oregon State. The NBA has a big television rights deal coming up, and we're not sure what that means for streaming services. Eric Fisher is a guy I've known for a long time. I know him from days covering sports in D.C. He lives in New Jersey now, but you remember him from Sports Business Journal and the Washington Times. Now he is the co-author of the newsletter at Front Office Sports. This is one of the must-subscribe newsletters. This is an easy one. It You don't have to give all your information. It's one email, and all of a sudden you get this great headline in your inbox. And it's one of the first things I read all the time. We also want to welcome a new sponsor to the show. And I'll have more details on HelloFresh. But if you go to HelloFresh.com slash 50friends and use the code 50friends for 50% off, Plus, you'll get 15% off the next two months. HelloFresh is a new sponsor here on Sports with Friends. Eric, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, I always appreciate it. I'm glad we can reconnect. And there's so much going on here. Uh, I feel like there's a whole beat on sports business that 10 years ago didn't exist or 15 years ago didn't exist. And I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's my sick cynicism. But I find this just as fascinating as anything that happens on a field or an ice rink or or a court. Yeah, absolutely. Because the things that we're talking about and are going to talk about directly lead to how and why a team wins on the field, that what they're doing in terms of generating revenue and and working to expand their business, that directly relates to the budget that they can put together for players and facilities and coaches and managers and all those sorts of things, that there is a direct line to the things that we're talking about and what you end up seeing on the field. So tell us about your origin story. So you've been in, in in media for a while. How did you get to front office sports? We taught, you know, we gave the newsletter out in the beginning of the podcast yep. and all that stuff. But tell me how, how, first of all, how'd you get with them? And what's the, what's the, <laughs> this is only a joke that only old people get. What's the reader's digest version of your history? <laughs> yeah. So long and winding road here. To, uh, so many p- kids that just stop the podcast. I, I laugh every time. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so we, we've already hit Reader's Digest and Long and Winding Road here. We've already dated ourselves here a little bit. But, uh, yeah, sort of uh, consider myself a classically trained journalist, uh, came up in daily newspapers, uh, and then uh, in the late 90s uh, really started getting into uh, when I was working in D.C. at the time. Uh, got very heavy into sports business coverage. We had, you know, brand new football stadium, a brand new arena. The original owner or the former owner of the Redskins died, Jack Kent Cook, who then led, yeah. you know, to a complicated to procedure. Dan Snyder led to Dan, to Dan Snyder. I covered that whole situation, took a year to almost to unwind itself. And that really became a full-time job. And so uh, then I started covering the relocation of the Expos, an mm. Olympic bid, uh, sales of That's every- That's where uh, we met, though, the, when the yeah. Nationals came. That's where I remember meeting you. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And uh, sales of every other local team down there. Um, 
and then moved into trade press and with uh, had a great run with Sports Business Journal for 14 years, mm -hmm. another four at Sport Business. And then earlier this year, after a restructure at uh, Sport Business, uh, you know, front office in a, in a big expansion mode, uh, you know, we were able to connect and uh, we've been off and running. Uh, that's great. And it's a great newsletter. Uh, it's, you know, it comes to my email inbox. That's probably the thing I read first. It, it, I appreciate not, that. Yeah, not always. Cool. Not always. Sometimes you know, there's something salacious that I'll see first. But uh, yeah, you guys and Synopsis, those are my two favorite email newsletters. That's uh, a great that, company. That, Thank that you. I, that I get. Uh, no, no question about it. Uh, something that happened this week. The, you know, if you're listening to this podcast as it's released, and if you're listening to this in the future, do me a favor. Let us know how the flying car is. Um, <laughs> the the Tampa Bay Rays. Yes. The Tampa Bay Rays have been looking for a new ballpark for 15 years. And the joke was, and this is even before Rob Manfred was the commissioner, the joke was that it's never urgent because Oakland didn't have an extended lease and the Rays did. So whatever the plan was for the Rays, they'd have to get out of the lease with Tropicana Field anyway. Well, 15 years have gone by and now they need a home. Yep. And that's when relocation rumors started and whatnot. Um, what I don't understand is there's got to be market research down there. Why are they building a new stadium where the old one is? Because one of the major drawbacks against Tropicana Field, besides the fact that it's ugly, is that it's Long in the middle of, the of nowhere. And Long you have... Tampa, you have the waterfront, you have St. Petersburg right down by the water where their spring training used to be. There's so many areas in that market that are attractive to build a ballpark to have an imp impact like a Camden Yards or a Coors Field or a Safeco Field like or T-Mobile Park, whatever you call that place now. The, 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 I, I want to understand why is this a victory when what they seem to be doing is the same dumb thing that the Marlins did? Well, and I'm glad you brought the Marlins up because that's really the corollary here that basically they took the deal that they could get and they tried a bunch of other ways and a bunch of other places. And for a variety of reasons that would take many hours to really fully unpack, um, it didn't come together. And in both instances, they took the deal that could get done. And uh, as you correctly indicate, the... Um, Lone Depot Park in Little Havana, where the Orange Bull was, for again, for a variety of reasons, has not uh, uh, really uh, come to fore in the way that everybody hoped. Uh, we've not had the collateral development that would hope to be spun off from this. It, di it just didn't come together. And, um, and you know, the team's playing better, which is great, but... Uh, you know, that's the deal that they could get. There are plenty of other places in Miami, all things being equal, that would be a better place to build a stadium. All things were not equal. And in the case of Tampa, all things also were not equal. Um, you know, I think there was a deal to be had. Can I, can I interject here? Oh, yeah. Because you brought up Miami and let, let, let's go there because it, it does apply to this Tampa thing. It, yes. I remember talking to David Sampson and they were talking about how on a Saturday afternoon, when the University of Miami was in its heyday, where, you know, the Vinny Testaverde, Bernie Kosar years, that place filled up one time a week. One time. I don't care if the Marlins are the second coming of the 1998 Yankees or the 1927 Yankees. It doesn't matter. Who is going to Little Havana on a Thursday night in May? 
no one. Uh, about about so, 9,000 so, people. We have right, the data. Right. So, right. Exactly. You guys have the data. So my question is, don't they see that? Like, I almost want to go to this press conference and it, it happened the other day. But I want to go to this press conference where they're going to show this rendering of this of this ballpark. And I say, stop. You're making the same mistake again. Well, I think, again, if you really wanted to sort of really boil it down where the Marlin or where the Rays ballpark should be is where the Yankees spring training complex is. They have the good spot there. Right, right. Uh, you know, and so that's I think there's probably a little bit of that playing into this as well, that, um, yes, you would ideally prefer to be on that side of the bay, uh, they meaning the Rays. Uh, but when you do that, you get closer to the Yankees complex. And, you know, for all these years, we've, you know, sort of referred to Tampa and certainly the Yankees and the Steinbrenner family, it's sort of like Bronx South and all that. And that's always been a difficult needle for the Rays to thread. And so... Again, you, you fundamentally you take the deal that you can get, and this was the deal that you could get. But as inconvenient as it is to be on the west side of the bay, it does give them some separation from where the Yankees have set up shop. It's a, it's it's a weird one. Uh, it's it's really really strange. well, and it's it, you know, and it's a weird market, and and Miami's you know, it's all dispersed. No, the, that whole state, like and the, the, every arena is worse than the next. Well, but the, the way that population is spread, you don't. It's all in these little pockets. You don't have more traditional clustering of population like you do in a lot of other cities, where it's sort of you you have like an interior core and then it sort of ripples out. You have, you know, multiple little pockets spread among a, a much more a much larger area geographically. So it just it's it's a little bit of a tougher thing for any of those Florida teams. Let's uh, let's put a pin in that. Let's go to let's stay in Florida. Uh, let let me ask you about Lionel Messi. Yes. Here's how I want to phrase this. I'm a Premier League fan uh, for three years now. I love it. I think it's remarkable and it's super fun. Never once have I been attracted to Major League Soccer. What I've under, come to understand from people who are much smarter about soccer than I am in the global sense of the of the of the sport major league soccer is like the seventh or eighth most pop uh, uh, talent driven leagues as you know compared to the german league and the spanish league and the italian league and all maybe, the other maybe leagues. four or five you know if you're being okay. a little bit more charitable but you're in the range for okay. sure i understand why messi came uh, that that's not the debate what i'm wondering is is what's the real impact in a league where they have this exclusive deal with Apple and Apple doesn't give any of its streaming numbers. So nobody really knows if millions of people are watching this or not. And when you guys cover this, it's, it's a very muted enthusiasm because, okay, they're selling out the stadiums at most. That's 40,000 people. That's not the millions. We're talking about what that league is trying to attract. And so how do you know, how do you, what barometer do you use to measure the impact? Not why did he go there? I understand why he went there. He's at the tail end of his career. It makes perfect sense. And he's still great. So he's having a great impact. That's not the question. The question is, how do you measure the success of that? 
So there's a couple of different metrics that I, you know, the short term is that, uh, you know, what Don Garber and and his crew at MLS are trying to do is sort of create a bit of a halo effect that maybe other superstars, you know, maybe even a little earlier in their career life cycle will also think about MLS as an option and, and then overall raise the talent pool on a global scale. Because um, obviously, as you correctly indicate, that's been a that's been a tough road to hoe because um, MLS doesn't play in a transfer market the same way that the other big leagues do. And we don't have all of this, you know, Saudi oil money and such financing the whole situation in the same way. And the whole rules of engagement are different here. No, so, but, but when I started watching the sport, this, the best example was Matt, this goalie, Matt Turner. Matt yep. Turner was the New England Revolution goalie. And he was great at his sport. He was an all-star. He was doing great. He said, if I'm going to make something of my career, I'm going to the Premier League. And now he's on his second team in the Premier League. Never once did he say, you know what? I'll go to Miami or I'll go to, you know, the Red Bulls or, or Dallas. Ultimately, or- the, the goal is to change that conversation and at least have that be in the consideration set. And then we get a few few more years down the line and then maybe it becomes more of a preferred choice for more players. So that's metric number one. I think metric number two is you continue to look at what's happening with franchise values and the expansion fees to get into this league continue to go up. The franchise values continue to go up. And in many instances are starting to kind of overlap with where, you know, some of the low end NHL teams are. And there was a little bit more of a symmetry there. And that's a real good indicator of growth for MLS. Again, we're talking about something fundamentally different than the Chelsea's of the world or the main United's of the world, but uh, there's been some real nice progress and they want more progress yet on franchise value. Is there going to be some kind of a rule that says that streaming services have to report uh, viewing numbers like the rule came down that television stations in the 50s had to record, had had to have some way, you know, the diary method and all these old ways of, of measuring this stuff. For example, who watches the Premier League on Paramount? Who watches the Champions League? Uh, no, no, on Peacock. Who watches the Champions League on Paramount? Who's watching the Friday night baseball on Apple? Who's watching the Peacock baseball game? The Amazon Thursday night football. They come out with a press release, but we just trust them. What I'm wondering is it used to be so finite. And I would think considering they're all fighting for ad dollars, someone needs to know the answer to that question. Yeah, I'm but I'm asking you to know the answer. I'm saying yeah, but someone if, needs to. Yeah, if Apple's not putting themselves out in the traditional ad market in the same way, and they've got a completely different business model on this, no, they don't have to play by the same rules. Amazon ended up playing by the same rules because they want the same ad dollars that are perhaps going to CBS or Fox or NBC or whatever, and they want to play in that sort of traditional ad universe. And to play in that traditional ad spend universe, you need the common metric but even still they're now um having a conversation with nielsen to try to include the first party data so even when they are playing by the rules they still want to change the game a little bit and not in a nefarious way but i mean they're still sort of doing it above board and trying to bring in nielsen and media rating council and so forth but even still they want to kind of tilt the field here a little bit um but if apple doesn't have any intention of really playing in that traditional ad space No, they don't have to play by the same rules. More of Sports with Friends in just a moment. But first, we'd like to welcome a new sponsor to the show, HelloFresh. 
With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes, and you make a great meal in your home. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 50friends. You don't need 50 friends. You just have to use the code 50friends. Use that code for 50% off, plus 15% off the next two months. When it comes to options, there's so many of them. HelloFresh's menu includes 40 recipes and over 100 add-on items to choose from every week. Ever wish you could spend less time planning, shopping, cooking for the family, and more time with them? From easy time-saving breakfasts to family dinners, that's the one I use, the kid-approved lunches and snacks, HelloFresh has what it takes to keep everyone, including you, happy and satisfied. With my crazy schedule, it doesn't leave me with a lot of time to spare. And HelloFresh, you don't spend all day in the kitchen just trying to make something good. They have quick and easy recipes. They have 15-minute meals. It's a little longer than 15 minutes if I let my kid chop onions. Regardless, you get a tasty dinner on the table in less time than it takes to go get takeout or even delivery. In addition to having them sponsor Sports with Friends, I subscribe to HelloFresh. Personally, we prefer the beef and the chicken. And if you go to my social media, I'll take a picture of what I made just last week. This amazing chicken pasta dish. It didn't take too long. HelloFresh.com slash 50friends. And use code 50friends for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. And keep an eye on my social media for videos of the meals I make. Why? Because everybody takes pictures of their food. I wanted to join the club. HelloFresh.com slash 50friends. Use code 50friends for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. Now back to the show. Okay, staying with streaming services. Whenever something is on a, a streaming service, I have to value what I pay for and what I don't. Uh, for example, uh, my daughter is a massive tennis fan. Tennis channel I found was ridiculously expensive. I, <laughs> 30 bucks a month for tennis. I just didn't see that crossing. And then all of a sudden, my Hulu Live just announced that now tennis channel is going to be part of Hulu Live. And I was like, what luck? That's that's great. You know, that's probably finite. But what luck? That's that's wonderful. Streaming services seem to be the dominant avenue in which people acquire these things. So like we are monitoring live television stations, for example, let's let me do a non-sports question. Do people in Nielsen know how many people are watching the Today Show versus Good Morning America versus whatever the CBS show this, this show is called. Do they know those things because they're live? So if you have YouTube TV or Hulu Live or Fubo, do you have live TV like if you have cable? Yeah, that's so that's sort of folded in. There's there's different sort of methodologies to do that, but you hear in a lot of these instances, particularly for big events, you know, Super Bowl playoff games, World Series, what have you, that there is a uh there is a linear number, then there is a streaming number, which is usually down two, three percent of the overall total. But yeah, they're they're uh and continuing to get better all the time in terms of refining their methodologies to have all of those various uh access points brought into the overall stew. 
Based on that, do you think the NBA is in the midst of uh, they're they're going to need a new national television contract? Yeah, and they're in market right now. And they're in market as we're recording this again. If you're listening in the future, flying car, the whole thing. <laughs> the do you think that a third network gets involved like an Apple or an Amazon? Or yeah, I, I definitely do you think, think so. that. Do you think that Warner Brothers? Uh, uses Max, the, the the artist formerly known as HBO Max, the um the the app is that going to be on? Is, is NBA going to be on a streaming service? Do you do, where do you see this all going? And do you think the NBA incorporates the RSN bankruptcies and some of the teams that are going to be without a local broadcast home into a massive package so that this is one of the most complicated? television contracts in the modern era could be so there's two different questions there as to i'll work backwards right. here it's a as podcast to, so one at a time yes so as to the local piece very fascinating because um you know as we're taping this we're not quite two weeks away from the deadline for the reorganization plan for diamond sports group the bankrupt parent of ballet sports and at that point not only are we expecting to see the reorganization plan but a clear line on how many teams nba teams they intend to walk away from the rights they just re-upped with the Kings, so at least they'll be the Kings. But there are a bunch of NBA teams and a bunch of uh, NHL teams that they need to basically say whether they're in or out. And if they're out on a critical mass of those teams, the kind of thing that you're describing becomes a lot more likely. And we don't really have a good feel on this because this is going to be a little bit more of a pre-thought sort of thing, whereas what happened with baseball this summer with San Diego – and then Arizona was much more of a sort of car crash kind of emergency type of situation. This is going to be a little bit more deliberately thought out in the decision one way or the other. So then as it relates to the national part, uh, it's actually going to be on multiple streaming services. If we anticipate that Disney ends up retaining some package of rights and I they really want to keep NBA rights, uh, and they've obviously got a lot of resources to bear, so I would say that's more likely than not. Then you would see some NBA on ESPN+, Plus, and then what ultimately becomes of the full direct-to-consumer version of the full ESPN. Then you're going to, if Warner Brother Discovery can keep the rights, yes, they want it, they're already putting together a plan to put some of their sports on max and having a renewed NBA rights would be a big part of that. There's some big questions around Warner brother discovery right now. They're already losing a ton of money from the writer and actor strikes and, and they how canceled that, winning time. They just canceled winning time. And so there's that's, a lot of corporate issues. garbage. Yeah. Yeah. Love the show too. Um, but there's some corporate issues there that also need to be sorted through. Uh, but if they end up retaining the rights and, and obviously they would like to, they would um, that would be on max. If NBC can get in NBA games would be on Peacock for sure. And then if a pure play streamer like an Amazon or an Apple gets them, they'd be on there. So uh, regardless of how this turns out is on a national level, there will be NBA games on at least two, maybe three, four different streaming services. Wow. It, it, it's fascinating. Um, the reason why I find this interesting is there are some markets that still love the RSN, the regional sports network cable model. 
uh, namely Boston, New York, and D.C. for that matter. Um, Masson makes money. Uh, Nesson, New England Sports Network, makes money. The Yes Network makes money. I mean, these networks, they're going to tell these commissioners, like, oh, we want to make a centralized MLS-style streaming service for one league, and they're going to be like, yeah, dream on. You're never getting the rights the way we sell our rights as a team, not as a sport. Yeah. And again, we're, we're in the midst of this whole grand redefinition and I'll go back to your NBA question. Cause it was a really good one that if again, we get a rejection of a critical mass of team rights and we'll know that very soon, then this really kind of opens up a whole bunch of re- really interesting possibilities because then you, you sort of have the, at least possibility of doing a really blended national regional deal in a way that we really haven't seen before. And again, that's a lot of sort of conjecture and ifs and buts, but uh, you know, writ large, as we figure out this whole media transition and everybody's trying to do it in real time, the NBA, given who the NBA is and what they want and and what their economic goals are for this next round of media rights, uh, they're really kind of at the tip of the spear as to where a lot of this is going. You know, rolling back the 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 clock a little bit, the NFL was really smart where they did all their big deals, you know, two and a half years ago, you know, early 2021, and they're locked into the 2030s now, and they've got a lot of long-term security. So they can kind of... Yes, they're doing some interesting things and, uh, you know, and obviously they got their own NFL plus and, you know, and doing more and more with Amazon and Black Friday and all of that. But by and large, they're really set and they're really protected, whereas, again, NBA really at the tip of the spear. The difference, though, the NBA with a hard cap, essentially every team spends the same amount of money. It's not going to impact the competition. To me, the biggest thing is in baseball because it's a free market and there are teams that don't spend a lot as it is, but you take the RSN money, let's use the Marlins as the example, since we talked about them before, if their gross revenues with tickets and merchandising and, and cable and everything is a hundred million dollars and 60 of that is from the RSN. And you take that 60 away. I know baseball in the case of San Diego and Arizona said that they're using an emergency fund that they that they have to subsidize those teams but that's not a you know that's that's the old argument you know give a guy a fish he eats for a day you know teach a guy how to fish he he eats for life um there there seems to be uh this 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 falling out point and and you could apply it to basketball you could apply it to hockey you could apply it to baseball but i think baseball is the most glaring because there's no salary floor or salary ceiling Yeah, although it's important to remember that in the last labor negotiations for both MLB and the NFL, there was a pretty good recalibration between where the rising revenues are going and what the players can get. It's no system is going to be perfect, but there were some major improvements on both fronts for players. And I would strongly suspect, based on what's going to about to come in for the NBA on the media rights, we're going to have a pretty significant redefinition on where NBA player salaries are going to go. And certainly in our lifetimes, we will see, and it may not be in this next deal, but maybe a a deal or two down the road, we will see a nine-figure NBA player in our lifetime for sure. 
Wow. And that's, in terms of annual salary, there will be a hundred million dollar NBA player. That's a that's a pretty pretty wild the whole thing is fascinating. Like I said, it's it's fascinating. Uh college football is about almost a month in. Um when the, when we're doing this podcast. Uh I, I love how these networks are gushing over Deion Sanders. Saw something on front office about that. Uh Deion Sanders is interesting. You know, if if he's in if he's engaging a, a dormant program, I think that's wonderful. You know, that, 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 that's all that is. My question to you is now that the dust has settled on the reshuffling, um, is it going to be as clear as the great uh, Andy Staples said to us two months ago on this podcast? Is it going to be that the SEC and the Big Ten are the A's and the Big 12 and the ACC are the B's? And everything else, the Mountain West and your and your Atlantic Ten and all, all your other conferences are the C's. And that's literally gonna be how it is. Because it just it feels weird that that if you happen to be Wisconsin, the money you're going to get is so much more than let's use my alma mater, Syracuse. It just doesn't seem like we're on a level playing field. So now we're not even competing for the same players. And eventually it will look like whether they have the system or not, it will look like the premier league because there will be this, this upper echelon. And when they do the restructuring of the college football playoff, it'll probably be like the premier league where top three or or, or four teams from those two mega conferences are going to send more teams than the B's and maybe the C will get one. And that's where I see this all playing out. And if you happen to be a fan of a team that's not in those big A's, you're essentially rooting for an MLS team. Yeah, it's that stratification. I don't I don't think it that could get as calcified as you're suggesting. I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, the other interesting part of that is between the A's and the B's and the C's, as you describe them, there is a collection that's like Team ESPN and a collection that's Team Fox, depending on how the contracts are sorted out. And what I'm kind of interested is within the Team Fox portfolio and the Team ESPN for portfolio, do you have over time any sort of internal smoothing out of some of those differences? Because to each of those networks long term, it's probably not in their best interest to just have a handful at the top of the funnel. And so, you know, maybe not in this right cycle, maybe in the next one or whatever, does the at least internal within their respective portfolios begin to smooth some of that out. And so that's why part of why I say maybe this isn't quite so calcified, but there is a threat there. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate because. You know, I, you know, old enough to remember when we were having, you know, shared national champions and, you know, people yeah. crying for years about having a playoff. Yep. playoff and then we finally get one and it still doesn't work. Like, this is a sport that people love and it's really like in their blood and it's their religion and all of that. And we don't really have a clear sense of how the competition should run fairly and how you determine a champion in a straightforward manner. And there have been various flavors of this conversation going on for more than 40 years. And yes, it's a lot more amped up now and the economic stakes are a lot bigger, but again, from where I see it's, it's all sort of the same thematic problem. Like, how can this sport organize itself properly? Cause it's still not quite there. 
I understand why the ACC did what they did by adding Stanford, Cal, and SMU. Although Stanford and Cal make sense, SMU I I don't understand, and you know Texas going. I think to- that was sort of a travel hub because that Dallas from a travel logistics and flight standpoint, right. it's a nice go between between the Southeast base and the California school. So maybe you stop off along the way, play a game there. You can set up some business offices there, that kind of thing. And then maybe then move on for the, you know, the Cal Stanford hit. So I think that was a bit of a piece of strategic geography there, but the story did exist. I think I saw it on front office. Uh, it seems like, that was protection for the ACC because the one thing that could void their media deal is uh, a decrease in the number of teams. And they're afraid that there's a bunch of really high expensive lawyers trying to get Florida state and Clemson out of the ACC so they can beg the SEC to take them in. And I just wondered, do you think ready? Right. But do you see that happening? I guess, I guess that was the assumption again, two months ago, we had Andy Staples on and it was, you know, you watch Clemson and, 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 and Florida state, they're going to try to get out and go to the SEC. And now my question is they haven't done it yet, but do you think that they're going to like, to me, all contracts can be broken. Yeah. And I, I would say the short answer is maybe I don't have any particular uh, in inside information on that particular one. I just but some of the stuff that I have done lately, I know for a fact and because they've been public about it, yeah. Florida is unhappy. They are they were unhappy as this whole summer of chaos began. And because yeah, they want to be in an a conference. Yeah. And they feel themselves getting lapped. And as the summer of chaos came to a conclusion, they were still unhappy. And so. You know, could could they absolutely jump? Yeah, I, d- I definitely think they're a flight risk. And to make the numbers work and to make the scheduling work, this works better in even number. So it would involve them bringing Clemson or somebody else along for the ride. Do you get the sense that Washington State and Oregon State in five years from now are two really proud programs going to be, quote unquote, less than you mentioned the word calcified? And I, I, I think your 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 analysis is spot on but it just seems like they are going to settle for the mountain west that's what it looks like um even brand it and call it the pac12 it's still the fundamentally right. the mountain under a new wrapper right so which it, mountain west is a good conference like let's not t- turn but, our no- but it's a c not a b well but but in other sports i mean we're talking about that in the context of football but in the context of basketball and some other things you know i, I think they're a very very good mid-major conference I, I guess my 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 point being do you think these programs because of the decrease in revenue of being a b conference and now being a c conference the, the the media rights deal for the Mountain West is a third of what the Pac-12 would have been or what Oregon and Washington are getting in the Big Ten. When you think of those two programs, will they be less than in five years? And will that hurt? You know, I remember once we did a podcast, a sports business podcast, when St. Peter's went on their big run. And I said, how many more people enroll in St. Peter's because they went on this run? Like, is there a metric that, that that monitors that? Is there a way to see the decreased dollars in, in those two athletic programs? Do they cut sports? 
like some sports, like l- lower revenue sports, do they do they just have less than everything? And is there a malaise? And I think about Washington State kind of like the way I looked at the city of Seattle after the Sonics left. There was like a funk. And they wanted to respond to that and show that they're not a bad sports town. Well, multiply that towards college. Washington State and Oregon State are proud programs. And are they going to be, quote unquote, less than? They might be. I, I think even the bigger question on that, and I'm not necessarily picking on those schools specifically, but over time, as some of this plays out in sort of the way that we're talking about, and particularly if we have a heavily tilted field for the expanded CFP and how that's sort of set, do some schools somewhere along the line decide, you know what, we're just going to put our eggs in other sports and maybe we'll just not do football anymore. And we've already seen some schools decide that football's not for us anymore. It's, you know, there's a lot of travel. It's very expensive from, you know, a whole infrastructure and equipment and insurance and all those kinds of things. And you may have a situation that, you know, some schools just decide they're going to focus on all the other sports. Uh, The whole thing is, is fascinating. I, I've said this repeatedly. Um, I said it on this podcast as a Syracuse alum. I don't want to be in the ACC. I don't like the ACC. I've never felt comfortable there. I don't understand why they have ads for Carol, North Carolina car dealers during the commercials on their broadcast. I just, the whole thing just doesn't feel. Well, and, and, right. and you're, Yours is a, is a whole other thing that, you know, and I grew up not too far from there that like, you know, really great basketball legacy, fantastic lacrosse legacy to this day. Um, you know, football has been up and down and obviously there were glory days, you know, many decades ago, sure. uh, but you know, the, the whole modern history of football has been much more of an up and down situation, whereas there has been much more consistent success. And I'm not, I'm not saying I have any inside information about uh, Syracuse. Ever, but like, could that be the type of school just to, again as an intellectual exercise saying, you know what, we're really good in, in basketball, men's and women's, we're really good in lacrosse, men's and women's, we do really good in a lot of other sports. Maybe the, this football thing is not for us anymore. All right, a couple more topics. I really appreciate this. This has been so enlightening. Um, globalization of sports. Yep. Uh, they're talking about putting a team, an NFL team in London. Baseball went out there. The NBA goes on these tours. It just seems like I understand why. But it's a big burden on the players. I I, I just think the players, any players that I've ever talked to hate it. Um, it's fun to go once. But if you start doing it in the midst of a grind, people don't realize the physical toll that every season starts. The uh, the NHL is opening this season in Australia. That's that's weird. That's it's not that it's in Australia. It's bad that it's in Australia. I'm thrilled for the people in Australia. But the fact of the matter is, is those players then have to get unjet lagged and not only play hockey, but play hockey at a championship level in which the, the 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 best is expected of them um where do you see the globalization of sports going or do you see sports just expanding for example could you get four teams of a league playing in europe and then a world series would be a real world series and i you can throw any sport football basketball baseball whatever you want to do 
do you, where do you see the globalization of sports going and how much of a priority is it? All these leagues say they want to do it, but is it a model of success that you can do it? Or is there enough drawbacks that it's not? What's your take on that? Yeah, I think it's only going to accelerate because the, the, there's been huge business successes on all of these. And you look at the kind of crazy numbers where you had, I guess, I think I remember upwards of a million people trying to get, you know, 70,000 tickets for an NFL game in Germany last fall. And these crazy numbers. And there's a ton of interest. And there, you know, these leagues are all duty bound by the respective team owners to drive more revenue. And this is an absolutely driving more revenue. The trade-off on that is exactly what you described. You've got to do this in a way that still maintains the health and wellness of the players. And it's definitely easier in football because you're once a week. And, you know, even though it's a collision sport, there's a little bit more downtime to be able to smooth through some of the travel things. It's a little tougher for the other sports. Now, also, just in terms of flight times and such, getting from the East Coast to the UK or continental Europe, you know, that's a much easier lift than the kinds of things we're talking about in terms of Far East Asia, certainly Australia, and the kind of, you know, grumbling from players that you, you recall, and I remember this as well, that, you know, when Major League Baseball started doing a lot of these J Japan-Korea games 20 years ago, there was a lot of complaining, and so... Um, you know, there's, that's just been an ongoing dialogue and the unions, as they should, are getting more and more involved and in really trying to make sure that a lot of little things in terms of hotels and, you know, flight amenities and time on both ends and scheduling and all those kinds of things to really protect the wellness of the players because they, they are the foremost asset here and everything that we're talking about. Yeah. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot more of this, but it's going to have to be done with that care and attention to those wellness factors along the way a couple more things um i don't know if i'm opening pandora's box with this but uh you saw the live golf yes and their influence the pga seems to have bought into that whole thing uh, ian o'connor was great uh, a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago now on the whole live pga situation there's talk i mean there's teams in the Premier League that are owned by Saudis. There's there's talk about the WTA and and tennis and and possibly uh, you know having the, the, their league be bought and, and whatnot. It's big dollars, and you guys cover sports business. Um, is this just going to be the ways of the world? And that if anyone is offended by any of that, uh, by the by 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 any of it, whether it's the journalist Jamal Khashoggi or the connections to 9-11, what, whatever you want to connect it to. It's called sports washing and it exists globally. Do you see it becoming a major player in North America and specifically in the, in the, in the country that you and I reside in? We're already starting to see it because all the references that you made, you know, as it's coming to golf and making its way into tennis and so forth, um, you know, getting into established team sports and getting on the cap tables of these, you know, big teams and whatnot, that's the next big step. They've already, you know, these leagues have already opened it, you know, you know, NFL's starting to talk about it, but the other leagues have already opened up to private equity and you know, sovereign wealth funds and those kinds of things in terms of team ownership. The Saudi piece of this is the next big thing. And for all the reasons that you describe, it is heavily, heavily fraught with complications. And you know, having a sort of touring golf situation, um, 
it still kind of hits a little bit different than, you know, fill in the blank favorite team in one of the big four leagues saying, you know, oh, by the way, we're, you know, minority owned to say nothing, a minority owned by a Saudi entity. And um, that's still going to be a very difficult thing to wrestle with. And obviously there will be fans that will no longer support those teams if that were to come to four. So um, it's a really complicated thing because again, you're, you're talking about, you know, a resource with essentially unlimited funds uh, right. in some of the wealthiest entities in the entire world. And think so, about all the baseball teams that like would dream of having an owner with that kind of money. Right. Right. And so, and, and again, when you have these leagues that are duty bound by their owners to continue to drive revenue, drive franchise value, all those sorts of things, but also do it in a responsible way that, you know, it's reflective of their community values and all those kinds of things. It's a really difficult thing. And I just, you know, I'm not sure exactly how it's going to play out, um, you know, absent, you know, major regime and culture change over there. Um, you know, if you were to have some sort of regime and culture change over there, this, you know, the, the dynamics of what we're talking about change a little bit, but given what we know now and what the current state of play is, you know, that's, that's a tough thing. Right. Um, I, you know, to me, it goes back to the premier league because in that league, you literally buy players. Yeah. You, you literally buy players and man city is a team that's been bought. I mean, they, 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 they it's not their primary owner, but there's like the Saudi subsidiary or minority owner. Uh, they're pro league. They did. They brought in Ronaldo and all these other guys. I mean, they, yeah, they just, you just, Bought them, lock, stock, and barrel. Bought them, and and you know, it it has to be weird. Like if you're a fan of that team, to see this now, it's like it's the ultimate success, but at what cost? And you just kind of wonder where do people draw the line? And you know, I'm not a huge golf fan, so like not watching live was not some protest. I didn't I didn't say, oh, I'm never going to watch live. I was I had zero interest in it. I barely watched the PGA. So what am I watching that for? My problem with this whole thing is, is where do you draw the line? And, you know, it, it, it's just, it's a very challenging, emotional, cultural entity. Yeah, the, it's the, not uh, just an X's and O's kind of thing. Yeah. And this is why the monumental sports thing is so fascinating where they, you know, sold a small slice to a Qatari sovereign wealth fund. It's not Saudi Arabia. That's, tell our listeners where, where that is. Yeah. With monumental sports. That's DC. Yeah. Parent organization of the Wizards, the Capitals, the Mystics, Capital One Arena. This is the Ted Leonsis Empire. And, you know, I've known Ted Leonsis for more than 20 years. Yeah, and Mark came on this podcast a bunch of years yeah. ago. And he has been a model on so many levels of what to do right in sports. And not only that, he's you know done a great job in terms of parenting because we've you know seen the silver spooner thing so so many times elsewhere in sports. But you know Zach is great in his own right, and you know his son Zach Leonsis, who runs a lot of the operation there now, and you know he he's turned out to be a really good egg as well. And um, you know they that that's an organization that's done a lot of things the right way, and. Um, you know, so now over the summer, they bring in this Qatari investor um, and we'll see how that sort of plays out. And that was sort of a trial balloon in this sense. It's a different country with a different, you know, same part of the world. Um, 
you know, but a, you know, different situation than what we're talking about in Saudi Arabia. And obviously this was all blessed by the respective leagues, NBA, WNBA, NHL. Um, and it, it, in a lot of ways, like this was like, okay, we're definitely on the right side of the line here. Let's try this and see how it goes. All right. Last one. Uh, what is the metric that you evaluate the health of a sport? Because in one conversation, I would say um, baseball's demographic is older. Um, you know, baseball, even though they've, they've changed the rules, and I've watched a lot more baseball this year than, than I did in the past couple of years, um, and I've, I've been paying attention, but the, the sport is still slow. The, the flailing, the swinging and missing, it, it just it doesn't seem to be something that's grabbing a lot of young people's attention. And what I always say is, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 50. There's a lot of ticket buyer data. They've come down six years in just two years. The, the median age has gone down by six years just compared to 2021. So there's some data that actually suggests they're making okay. some progress. All right. So that's, that, that's a good sign. So, um, but team valuations are higher than ever. I mean, of course, the Dodgers, the 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 Red Sox, the forget forget who's good, you know, in in this in this sport, these teams are valued at in the B word. They are in multiple billions of dollars. So, how do you measure the health of a sport? Is it what trends on social media, or is it just team valuations? And as long as the teams are valued high, don't worry about the sport's future because the president is very. You know, I don't think there is a single statistic. There's not a war for, you know, the health of the sport or whatever. I think you put together a lot of different things and try to come up with some sort of kind of mosaic or a composite sort of zeitgeist in terms of like, where are the revenues going? How, you know, what is the social media sentiment? What does attendance look like? What are, what are those television demographics look like? There's a lot of different data points that you pull into this and you try to, you know, synthesize all of that. And that's what a lot of really smart people at all these teams and leagues do all day, every day is take all of that data and try to synthesize that into a, you know, particular narrative. Um, and then it, and it also manifests itself in winning as well. And that's, that's on a team level, that's another indicator of health and, you know, you sort of put it all together. And then, you know, I think you could point to, for example, a team like the Atlanta Braves that all the metrics are pointing up that from a development standpoint, a wins and loss standpoint, a financial standpoint on a, like they're kind of, that's a team right now that's hitting on kind of all cylinders right now, but that's sort of done by pulling together all of those different pieces of data and putting together sort of a, you know, not a single war number, but kind of a, you know, composite assessment. I look at the NHL. I think that's a league on the rise. Without question. I, I look at the NBA and I, I see how popular it is, uh, but I want the league to be better. You know, one thing we didn't really touch on uh, a lot uh, was that, that play in tournament. It's all because this regular season keeps getting diminished and diminished and players don't take it seriously. So I don't understand how they ask fans to take it seriously. Yeah. Yet the NBA brand has never been higher. I, it's it, the NBA is like a confluence of positives and negatives all at the same time. Yeah, the the in season thing. It's also a globalization thing because if you look at European soccer and in yeah. some of these 
things around the world. They do all these myths, and that's just part of the sport and culture. So I think that's almost a, a sense to kind of further globalize the game. But, but also part of what you're talking about is, you know, make December and January a little bit better too. Right. And the NFL um, has been white hot. Uh, and their their move to YouTube for the Sunday ticket just shows you how progressive they are. They've been a lot more forward thinking with social issues and a lot. The NFL's gone through a metamorphosis in the last couple of years, and their ratings just continue to be you know through the moon. Um, it just seems like at 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 this stage of the game, the the sport I I am most concerned about would be baseball. It's the sport that I. Like I was going to say before, I'm going to be 50 um, when I'm 80 and the people who are 20 now are 50. They will not have been grown up with the passion that you or I were similar in age. We, 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 are, we will not have gone through the blood, sweat and tears of the 80s, the 90s and the 2000s. They won't feel that same way. And I just wonder in 30 years from now. I think hockey will be bigger. I think football will be bigger. I think soccer will be bigger. I don't see baseball being bigger. Yeah, I'll dis- I'll disagree with you. I think it's going to be different. I think fans will not live and die with what their team did the night before, you know, when I was a kid, my, like my entire kind of being was based on how did the Yankees do last night? That was like a pretty big, strong indicator of my mood the next day kind of thing. You know, I I think fandom is going to be a little bit different, but you know, when I look at 2023 major league baseball, you know, I see a ton of success that, you know, huge rebound in attendance, you know, pretty good rebound on television, pace of play rules that have really, uh, you know, made a big impact, you know, made some real progress on uh, average ticket buyer age, as I mentioned before. There is definitely more work to be done. Um, but I think even Rob Manfred would tell you that this was Rob Manfred's best year. Yeah, yeah, he's 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 doing well. He he's a subscriber to the podcast, so all I can say is thanks, Rob. Keep giving us those good reviews. Um, <laughs> Eric, how can people find you uh, through the newsletter? How can they subscribe to the newsletter? It's super easy, folks. Subscribe to the newsletter. Just they don't ask you for like your firstborn. They just want your email address, and that's where they send the newsletters. Yeah, all free. So frontofficesports.com, uh, there'll be a pop-up that'll come right there when you go to the webpage for the first time. You just put in that basic information, and then we're going to hit your inbox twice a day with a lot of good stuff. That's great. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, this is a, a whirlwind of information. People are going to pause this, take breaks, come back to the podcast. It's really uh, great stuff. But uh, continued success to you, and come back. Be, don't be a stranger. Come back to the show. I look forward to it. That is Eric Fisher. Next week on the podcast, we are going to talk about sports and mental health with two rock stars, Naomi Osaka and Michael Phelps, next week on the podcast. All the details coming up next. Please give this podcast a rating, a review. Five stars would be nice. We'll see you next week. If you want me to stay, I'll be around today. I'm about to go and then you'll know for me to stay I got to be me You'll never be in doubt That's what it's all about You can't take me back
person 